I'm all kinds of over the, all over the place this morning, so bear with me. Um, this morning we're going to be in Revelation chapter 4, verses 1 to 11, so you can turn with me there. Uh, we will uh, be there shortly. We are, all of us, born with certain preferences, certain things that we like and certain things that we don't like. As a dad, I can see this even modeled in my very own children. As I go into their bedrooms, I can see along their walls, they have posters that are put up there, posters of things that they like. They have their beds arranged though just the way that they like it. They've got their stuffed animals put there just the way that they like it. And one child that has no stuffed animals whatsoever because he doesn't like that. That's not in accordance with his preferences. That's no different for my daughter. She's three, just turned three. You walk into her room and she's got her room for the most part set up the way she wants it. She has the clothes outlined the way that she likes it, particular clothes that she likes to wear, particular clothes that she doesn't like to wear and that you can't make her wear. The point is we all have our preferences and that doesn't change when we get into our worship services, when we come into our churches. That doesn't change. We all have our preferences We have certain things we like about the church that we belong to, and we have certain things that we don't like about the church that we belong to. Certain things about the worship service that's just not in accordance with what what we like. And then some things that we like quite well, and we'd even tell our friends about. I like this, we do this, It's, it's really great. The question, though, is as a church body, how do we move beyond our preferences into that which is mutually beneficial for the building up of the body as a whole? What are those things that are mutually beneficial for all of us? This morning, we're going to begin a short series on worship. We're going to take a step back from Matthew, from our typical study of Matthew. Since I've been here for the last going on two years, we have, uh, we have, had, we have gone through the book of Colossians, and we have gone through, the, or partially through the book of Matthew. And in those two books, we have talked about a great deal about what it means to be a part of the body of Christ and how we are an outpost or an embassy for the kingdom of heaven. And as such, we represent Christ not only in who we are as individuals, not only in what we do as a collection, a body of Christ, but also in how we worship. We represent what worship is like before the throne of God in what we do here on a Sunday morning. And so as we take a look through this short series on worship and we discover the things here, what it's going to teach us is what we are to do as a body of Christ, how we are to engage in worship, why we do what we do. Over the last couple of years, there have been some changes that have taken place in our worship service. Some of those have been met with warm preferences. We we like this. Some of those, not so warm. And that's okay. I understand that. It's going to rub against your preferences and the things that you would prefer, the things that you would like. But in this series, I want to address why some of those changes were made. 
why we do some of the things that we do in our worship services. Why this is not just haphazardly strewn together. Now, this morning, we are going to go as our introduction to this series where no church has gone before. In Revelation chapter 4. All right? Most of you have probably been in on a series through Revelation 2 and 3. Studying the seven churches. Maybe even so bold as to lump in chapter 1 in that study. But very few churches encroach upon chapter 4 because this is where all the disagreements start to happen. We're not going to have any of that this morning. We're just going to go from, uh, through Revelation chapter 4, verses 1 to 11. Look with me there in your Bible. It says, After this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian. And around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of emerald. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion. The second living creature like an ox. The third living creature with the face of a man. And the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to Him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. Let's pray. Father, help us to understand the text that you've put before us this morning. Help us to understand why and how we worship the way that we do. But more than that, more than anything, Lord, soften our hearts, transform and renew our minds that our worship of You would be infectious to others who would look on. And that our worship would not remain in this room, but would transform the community around us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. To give you some context that I think might be helpful... For, the, for chapter 4 of Revelation, here's what you need to know. Chapter 4 of Revelation comes right after chapters 2 and 3. You're astounded by that information, I know. You're going to take that information to the bank, I can tell. 
Now, many of you will be familiar with chapters 2 and 3. You've probably read through it a number of times. And when you look at chapters 2 and 3, it's the most frequently read, it's the most frequently understood chapters in Revelation. And, and the reason is plain. It's pretty straightforward. It, there are some things of discussion in it, but rarely ever are you going to see an argument about chapters 2 and 3. In chapter 2 and 3 of Revelation, there's seven warnings to the churches in Asia Minor. And five of the seven churches that are addressed there in Revelation 2 and 3 are told to repent for sinful practices. And now each of these churches are facing cultural pressure. Each of them are facing a cultural pressure. And we know from the historical record that each one of these churches are surrounded by a government in the area that is forcing them into trade guilds. That's forcing everybody in the culture into trade guilds. Now, when you hear trade guilds, think something to the effect of modern-day workers' unions. It's a, a, basically a guild of people that if you don't join, you are unable to work, or at least finding employment is going to be really difficult in your culture. And so the problem is that as the Roman government forms these trade guilds in Asia, Asia Minor, what are they going to promote? Well, they're going to promote the worship of the pantheon of gods that the Roman government worships. And so you can see why this is going to be a problem for Christians as they seek employment if they're forced to join these trade guilds. They're also going to be forced to toe the party line. They're going to be forced to adopt the Roman pantheon of gods and to accept them into their worship services. You can see why this would be a problem for the churches in Asia Minor. And so some of them like the church at Ephesus, we see open in chapter 2, has decided that the remedy to this problem is that they'll simply stop being evangelistic. This is stop moving out beyond the boundaries of their church walls. And why would they do that? Because when they do move out, it draws attention to who they are as a church body. So it seems as though they've adopted this practice of us for no more, shut the door. We're good with the body that we have. And so we don't need to move out and draw attention to ourselves. Which Jesus tells them, you have abandoned your first love. You have abandoned the love that you had at first. And how do we know what that is? Well, it's with good reason we know that we think that it was evangelism that they stopped doing. Because he says there, repent and do the works that you did at first. What were those works that a church does at first? But go out and proclaim the gospel. But then you have other churches, like the church at Sardis, which took a little bit different tact to solve the problem. What did Sardis do? Well, they have seemingly capitulated to the culture on every point. They've done everything that the culture has required of them. They seem to have adopted these cultic sexual practices like the rest of the culture around them, and they've most likely accepted the worship of the Roman gods into their church, or at least they have tolerated that there are people in their midst 
who have adopted the worship of pagan gods and they haven't called them out in their sin to the point where Jesus actually says that there are only a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their garments, which means they have not sinned grievously by either worshiping idols or have adopted pagan sexual practices. And as such, their church has grown Ironies of irony. Irony of ironies. Their church has grown. It seems as though the culture around them, the, Sardis, the Sardian culture, looks at that church and says, oh, that's a good church. That's a church that's warm and welcoming and friendly and inviting. That's a church that is okay to be a part of if you want to work in this community. And they're going to receive little, very little cultural backlash for the way that they go about their worship. But Jesus says that you have the reputation of being alive, but you're dead. I don't think we have to stretch very far to see this very same thing playing out today in our culture. That's why those two chapters are so prominently taught in our churches so often. But then the question is, what's the remedy for these churches? What's the remedy? How are these churches to address the problem? Well, the, the five that seem to be representing Christ poorly that are called out there in chapter 2 and chapter 3 are told very plainly, repent. Repent. Two of the churches are not told to repent. In fact, they're told to endure the persecution that's coming. Endure the persecution that's coming. To be faithful unto death. But you see, there's a problem here. How are these churches expected to hold up under the cultural pressure? How are they expected to turn from their sinful practices? Mind you, the faithful churches, particularly Smyrna, are told they're about to suffer. You're about to suffer. And the churches that have caved to the cultural pressure, the churches that have adopted sinful practices in their worship services, seem to be rather successful. Sardis seems to have the reputation of being alive. Laodicea is wealthy beyond all imagination. So it's working out so well for those who are in the midst of sin. And yet for those who are faithful, they're told, be faithful to the end. You're going to die and you're going to suffer unto death. What would cause either of these churches to pursue biblical fidelity when the sinful practices seem to be paying off and the righteous practices seem not to be? And I think the answer is in chapters 4 and 5. We're considering chapter 4 this morning, and there are at least two observations, two points that I think John is making that I want us to observe. The first is that God's presence captures our attention. God's presence captures 
our attention. We come to chapter 4 and we're immediately taken into the throne room of heaven. And there we see the throne of God and many creatures around the throne. Creatures like we know. We have there a lion, the chief of the wild beasts. We have an ox, the chief of the domestic beasts. We have a man, or one who has a face of a man, the chief of the intellectual beast. And we have uh, a, an eagle, the chief of the birds of the air. And so these creatures are probably designed to be representative of the creative order as a whole, a creative order of all animate life. And so we've also seen these same creatures, or creatures very similar to this, in Ezekiel and also a little bit in Isaiah. And, but, but then there are also features to these creatures unlike anything that we've ever seen. They, they have six wings, they are full of eyes, it says, all around and within. And they also, it says they speak in verse 8. So these creatures are a little bit foreign to us. Now, why do they have six wings? Well, we're not told there in the text. But in Isaiah chapter 6, we see seraphim that also have six wings. And they are guarding the throne of God, similar to what we see the creatures, positioned to where the creatures are here in the heavenly throne room. And the reason they have six wings is because with two they're flying, with two they cover their face, and with two they cover their feet to shield themselves from the radiating holiness of the presence of God. So perhaps... That's why these have six wings. I don't know. We're not told. But then they have eyes, full of eyes, all around and within. What, is, what does that mean? Well, eyes in Scripture, particularly in the, in the prophets, are designed to communicate judgment that's based on knowledge. We see this in 2 Chronicles 16, 9. For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro. He doesn't have eyes. He's a spirit being. He doesn't have eyes. But it says, for the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to give strong support to those whose heart is blameless toward him. We see earlier in Revelation 1, 14. His eyes are like a flame of fire. Communicating the same thing. Throughout the book of Revelation... These creatures are going to inaugurate, they're going to start the judgment of God that is unleashed on humanity. We see this in Revelation chapter 6. We see it again in chapter 15. These creatures are starting the judgment of God on humanity. And so their being full of eyes is probably meant to express that they have a God-given ability to inaugurate God's judgments on God's creatures as representatives of the creative order. John notices the things around the throne, but he also notices the throne itself. And he describes it there in verse 3 as having the appearance of jasper and carnelian, which is also called sardius in the Old Testament. And around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald so he's depicting the throne of God as if someone were shining a bright light through a bunch of gems. And though you can't see the gem per se, you're blinded by the radiance of the light coming through the gem and emanating from it. Now, is there a reason why he chooses stones to describe this? I, I think there is. At least some of, of these stones decorate the Holy of Holies as the priest would, uh, would 
do his ministry there in the Holy of Holies. On the ephod that the priest would wear, the vest that he would wear, were stones like this. In fact, some of these specifically were on his vest as he would do his ministry before God in the Holy of Holies. These stones and many others are the stones that characterize the foundation stones for the new heavens and the new earth where God's presence dwells. Not only that, but the Garden of Eden, back in Genesis chapter 2, is said to dwell where some of these precious stones were found in abundance. The point being, suffice it to say, that the place where God's presence dwells is always associated with radiance, with brilliance, and with beauty like the rarest and most precious gems on the face of the planet. And so he uses that to describe the throne of God, something that he obviously can't make out all the details of. Don't miss what's being communicated here, especially coming on the heels of Revelation chapter 2 and 3. John is captivated. He's captivated by the throne of God, and he thinks that the church of Jesus Christ should be too. How is it that suffering saints receive comfort? How does a suffering saint receive comfort? How does a saint stand in the midst of persecution when his knees are wobbling? How does he stand? What does he do when the temptation to sin becomes so great that he feels like there's no choice for him but to cave and to give in to that temptation? Or what does he do when, like my friend found out this week, who's 41 years old, that he has stage 4 colon cancer? What does he do? What's going to allow him to stand on his feet in the face of that kind of adversity when everything in his body says to run and hide and preserve your life? He stands on the rock of a magnificent and holy God. That's the only thing he can do. In the heavenly scene, suffering saint is reminded why his suffering is worth it. Why his trials and his tribulation are worth it. He's reminded what awaits him on the other side of all of this. He's reminded that though his sorrow may last for the night, joy comes in the morning. In order for us to make it to the end of life, in order for us to maintain our confession of faith in Jesus Christ, we have to have our attention captured by that picture of God. Nothing else will suffice, nothing short of that will suffice. We might as well pack it up and go home if we're here to worship anything else. 
in order for our worship services to even make any sense, this is what we have to have in our minds. That's the reason our worship makes no sense to unbelievers. They may come in here, they may be in here right now. And they look at the songs that we sing. They look at the sermons that we preach. We come here and we listen to somebody. That we gather together as a body. That we encourage one another. That we edify one another. What in the world is going on there? It makes no sense to them. Because in their minds, they don't have this picture of God. That's the only thing that brings us together in worship. And it's the only reason why worship even makes any sense is if this is the picture that we have. I would tell you, if that's you, if you're here and you're thinking, I was just here to check this out, but this does not make any sense to me. Let me tell you the, the passage that we just read. The throne room of God is one day where we will all stand and give an account for our life. And this is the God that we're going to meet there. A God whose holiness and radiance, we have to shield our eyes. And our sin is going to become evident. The question is, do you have an advocate? For those who place their trust in faith in Christ, he is our advocate He stood in our place and took the wrath of God so that on that day he can stand as our defense attorney and give a defense inside the throne room of God as one who belongs there. But I want us, for just a moment, I want us all to put ourselves in the shoes of John. I want us to just all think about this for just a second. Let's just pretend for just a moment that we're in the midst of your everyday worship service at Emmanuel Baptist Church. We're singing songs, we're praying prayers, we're hearing sermons, we're taking up an offering, hopefully. We're doing all the things that we would normally do in our worship service. And all of a sudden, something very strange happens, that inside, I don't know, the control room of heaven or something like that, a switch is flipped on, and every single one of us, as we are singing our songs, the building around us totally disappears. The roof totally disappears, and all of a sudden, we're surrounded by a chorus of angels singing the exact same song that we're singing All of us, whether we look to the side, to the left, to the right, above us, below us, everywhere, there is a chorus, a legion of angels, all singing the same songs that we're singing, and all facing forward. And what we see in the distance, in the in the before us, is the throne of God Himself. The throne seems far out there, and yet strangely it feels very close. That it's further than we could actually touch, but somehow, strangely, we can make out all of the details like John describes here in the throne room. Suppose during this time, you hear a voice emanating from the throne. 
It's the voice of God himself. And for just that moment, every single one of us, all seeing the same things, are right there in the throne room of God, surrounded by a chorus of angels. How would it change your worship? How would your worship in that moment change? What would you think? What would you do? How would your songs be sung? Brothers and sisters, that's what each one of us should be fighting for every single day of our lives. Not least of which in here on Sunday morning. Every single one of us should be fighting all the distraction to focus on that. To grab a hold of that picture as if we're there in the midst of the throne room of God himself singing praises to his name. When we hear the words of scripture read, do you realize these are the very words of God? It's as if we're hearing the voice of God emanating from the throne room. The picture that John paints in Revelation chapter 4, it tells us that no matter what we do in this room, no matter how long we spend, no matter how much, how many songs we sing, no matter what kind of songs we sing, we're in no danger of overdoing it. We're not going to shoot past the throne room. There's never going to be a point when we die and we stand in front of God that we look around and we go, man, I wish our church and my pastor hadn't made such a big deal about this. Can you imagine that day when you stand before God? You're going to wish you had spent more time in worship. You're going to wish that you didn't make some of the decisions that you made. Some of the decisions you did make You're going to wish you had made more. But can I be honest with you? Many mornings I wake up. Sunday morning is no exception. And I'm not even sure I want to be a Christian, much less worship God. That's the default posture of our hearts. So when we open our eyes in the morning, Depending on how that night went. We may be frustrated with life. We may be already distracted. Our minds going a million different ways. I get here about six o'clock in the morning on Sunday morning, go into my office, and begin preparing for what I'm about to do. I don't take this responsibility lightly. And I assume that you and I are virtually the same. That the default position of our heart is that we both don't want to be here by default. 
and that we have to get there, that we have to warm up. This is why all of our worship services, in fact, if you look in your worship bulletin, you will see it labeled there. All of our services at the very top are, begin with a prayer of adoration. Usually Tom leads that prayer, and his focus during that prayer is to acknowledge who God is. To just stop for a second and to help us all remember in prayer who we're here to worship. Let's just stop and think about that for a second. The last thing I want to hear is a worship leader get up there and say things like, how do y'all feel? In the morning, I'm barely ambulatory. I can't think right. I need to be reminded that when I stand here in worship, I'm here to worship a holy God, the God depicted here in Revelation chapter 4. So we begin with a prayer of adoration. And Jeremy follows that up with scripture that's designed to reinforce the exact same thing. Remind us in scripture that we're called to worship him. And so we have a call to worship so that you remember not only who God is, but that you're invited into his presence to worship him and you're encouraged to worship him. And then the next two songs are going to force us to sing praises of adoration. Both of those songs are meant to focus on who God is. So by two songs in, we should understand what we're here doing and why we're here to do it. Because God is worthy of it. Brothers and sisters, we're no different than the churches in Revelation chapter 2 and 3. We're beset by temptation and many times we give in and we face all kinds of pressure in our daily lives. We have distractions, we turn away from uh, God and we, we pursue sins, but what? how could we possibly, how could we possibly be encouraged to turn away from those distractions, to turn away from the sins and focus on the worship of God. It's only when we force our minds through prayer. It's only when we force our mouths through praise to remind our fickle hearts of the God that we're here to worship. That's the only way we can do it. That's the only way we can push away those distractions is to remind ourselves that God is worthy of praise and honor and glory now and forever. The second thing that I want you to see in the text is that God's worth demands our worship. God's worth demands our worship. I want you to notice the behavior of all those who are around the throne responding to the majesty of the one who sits on the throne. You see there in verse 8 that says that the living creatures, day and night, they never cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. They're not the only ones. Also around the throne, there's another group in the throne room, 24 elders. Notice that these elders are given some kind of authority themselves. And there's at least three reasons in the text why we know that they have authority. First of all, they sit on thrones. Second, it says, in, uh, it says that in verse 4. Second of all, we ha- they have crowns. It says that in verses 4 and 10. And then third of all, they're called elders, for goodness sakes. 
Elders going back all the way to the time of Moses, then in the synagogue, and then extending to the church age, have always been in this position of authority. That's what they called it. And so, but notice what happens when the living creatures give praise to God, which is day and night and never ceasing. The 24 elders, it says in verse 10, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne, saying, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. Now the praise that we see offered here before the throne of God is where we get our understanding of what worship actually is. And so I want to give us a definition that will be a working definition for us as we talk about what worship actually is. Worship is the expression of the worth of God based on a proper understanding of who he is. Worship is the expression of the worth of God based on a proper understanding of who he is. Now we'll work with that definition for now and we'll modify it, we'll add some things to it and we'll have some other considerations as we go, but it'll suffice for us this morning. But this is why you and I are here. We are not here primarily to learn things although we do learn things in worship. If God, if in order to worship God, we have to understand who He is, we have to understand and learn things in order to worship Him rightly. But we're not here primarily to learn things. We're not here primarily to evangelize the lost, although we do evangelize the lost as we gather together in worship. We're not here primarily to fellowship with one another, although we do fellowship here. We are here primarily with our hearts, with our minds, with our bodies to ascribe worth to God simply because He's worth it. That means that we fight our wandering minds. I'm under no illusion that I can hold your attention for that long. But it's worth it to fight our wandering minds. The wandering mind that you were given is not a product of God's creation, but a product of the fall. You fight your wandering mind even in things that you really enjoy. You fight your wandering mind during Alabama football games. You fight your wandering mind while you're watching TV. You fight your wandering mind when you're doing things that you really enjoy. But your sinful heart does not want to worship. Some things are worth fighting. Some things are worth stretching our attention span to focus for a moment on the Word of God simply because God is worth it. So that means we sing songs to tunes we might not be crazy about. I might not prefer that tune in particular, but the words are true and they remind my heart of who God is. And so I'm going to sing it because God is worth it. That means we swallow, maybe, the grievance that we have against another brother or sister 
I don't necessarily mean sin against you, but just a grievance, even though you have them dead to rights. But we swallow that grievance and we, we just ignore it altogether and forget completely about it. Why? Because we don't want to distract ourselves from worship and we certainly don't want to distract somebody else from worship. That means we show up early and rehearse some of us to lead songs that will edify us. Why? Because God is worth it. That means we endure sometimes squirmy children next to us. Why? Because we want to show our children that God is worth it. It's impossible to completely throw out all preferences when it comes to worship. You're never going to get rid of everything that you like or dislike about worship. It's just impossible. You may always prefer more praise choruses versus more hymns or more hymns versus more praise choruses. You may prefer to stand a lot or to sit a lot. You may always prefer 30-minute sermons versus 45-minute sermons. You may prefer hour-long worship services versus hour and 30-minute worship services. You may prefer your sermon to be a little more applicational versus a little more text-driven. But there's a reason that I've entitled this sermon beyond preferences rather than throw out your preferences because the question is how do we move past the distraction that is the this worship service and and thinking things like this worship service isn't exactly how i like it how do we move past that and i think that you spend time fighting the flesh that's right now saying what's for lunch that's right now saying, would he just please get on with it? That voice inside your head that's saying, I am so sleepy right now. That voice that's saying, this is really boring. I really wish that he would just keep quit droning on and on and on. And instead ask, what is God saying to me in this? What does this picture of God in Revelation chapter 4 say about him? What does it say about me as his worshiper? And am I reflecting that attitude in my daily life? What about in my service here in this church? I've said before, and I still believe, that the main goal of the pastor is through, through the preaching of the word, however long that takes to prepare his people to die well. Paul says in, in Colossians 1.28, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Paul saw that as his goal, and, and I think he intends it for everyone who delivers the word of God to God's people the reason that we're going to spend our time and we're going to order our worship service to be targeted at communicating this very message over and over and over of the grand vision of who God is and the reason that we're not going to merely follow along with what is culturally popular is because it's only by this picture of God that we're going to see dying as gain. And that's our goal. That's what we're here for. Is to get to the point with our attention span 
to get to the point with our bodies, to get to the point with our actions and our attitudes, that we can truly say to live is Christ and to die is gain. I want to challenge you on a couple things. First, push back against your preferences. Just because they're your preferences don't make them right. Push back against your preferences. You have a desire, a natural desire. I have it when I'm sitting in the pew. I have it sometimes in the pulpit. A desire to check out, to remove my mind from all of this, to go somewhere else and to think about something else. You see there the creatures around the throne room day and night. That's not an advertisement for 24-hour worship services, just so you know. I say again, boredom in worship is a product of the fall. We should fight against it. We have here an hour and 30-minute worship service, roughly. We have sometimes long prayers. We've got sometimes long sermons that go on and on. But this picture of God is why the early church worshiped for six hours. We're not advertising six-hour worship services either. Three hours together as a body where the public was welcome, where they did exactly what we do. Then three hours where they dismissed everybody and did the Lord's Supper and prayer and more singing. Second thing I would challenge you to do is to come prepared. Come prepared and ready. Read the text ahead of time. We'll try to do a better job, in this, particularly during this series of publishing the text that I'm going to preach from in the week leading up to the sermon. But come ready. Read the text ahead of time. Pray that your mind would be captured by God and his word. And really think, ask questions of the text that you've been reading the week before. Think about the things that are going on there. See if some of those questions are answered in the sermon. If you have more questions, feel free to ask them. I may not be able to answer them. Engage with the text. But what is the result for all those that are in Christ? I'll tell you this for sure. If in our worship services, God is worshiped rightly, meaning that the Bible, the truth of the text of Scripture is, is rightly taught, that that is the meaning of the text, and is communicated to his people. If the songs that are sung are theologically correct, and they're turning our hearts in worship to God, and if our hearts are prepared, and we take care to confess our sins, and to make sure that our attention is held in check, I promise you one thing. If you are in Christ, you will grow. By leaps and bounds. How is a church body prepared to die well like those seven churches in Revelation? Like John is wanting for those seven churches in Revelation. How does a church get there? It's by the worship of God. That's how. That's how we ready ourselves. That's how we prepare. Showing up on Sunday morning Forcing our hearts to sing praises to his name. To listen to the words of his text read in scripture. And in the end, we will all stand before the throne of God as people who are mature in Christ.
Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, please make this true of us. Please make this true of us. Set our hearts in the direction of your throne. Give all of us in this room a crystal clear picture of exactly who you are. That every day we may check our preferences, we may check our desire to wander. And when we say about both of those things that they pale by comparison to the God of the universe and that in you is a treasure far beyond anything that we could have here on earth. That in you is beauty and justice and righteousness and holiness and wisdom and purity and love. That we may fall on our face every single day, not least of which Sunday morning, and worship the God who's there, who loves us enough to send His Son to die for us. What a treasure we have in the God that you are. May that be the beat of our song. May that be our chorus. May that be our preference. Pray for this offering that we're going to take up. Lord, may it be to the building up of your body here, your body abroad. May it be to the furtherance of your kingdom as the gospel goes out to the nations. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.